This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University in New York, and I should also mention Development Lead in the Americas for the FAIR Network. This week, the gang is all here. That includes my fellow historian, the brilliant Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History in African American Studies at Penn State University, Jessica Luther, Independent Journalist, Weightlifter, PhD candidate Baker in Austin, Texas. The Force of Nature, Shireen Ahmed, freelance journalist and activist in Toronto, Canada. And the great wordsmith and dog whisperer, Lindsay Gibbs. She's a sports reporter in D.C. and the queen of the fabulous newsletter Power Plays. Lindsay, I hear there's some big news afoot for the newsletter. There is, as of time, right now, when you are all listening to this, Power Plays, you can actually pay for it. So for the past four months, I've been doing the newsletter um, completely for free. And um, starting this week, um, I will be charging for it. So there are really great deals to get in on the ground floor. All week, it's 25% off if you go to powerplays.news. You'll be able to sign up and subscribers get a lot of beyond just getting an additional two newsletters per week that people on the free list won't get. So if you stay on the free list, you'll still get one newsletter per week for free. But subscribers, you're going to get entry into our book club where we're going to read a book about women's sports every single month, have group discussions about it, bring in authors. Um, I'm so excited about that. And also going to have special um, section where we highlight what we should be watching. Something everyone asks me, how do I figure out what women's sports events I should be watching and where? Well, I'm going to do that work for my paid subscribers. (laughs) So I think And there's also a lot of networking benefits from our thread. So I think it's going to be really worth it if you're a fan of Burn It All Down. I think there's a lot you can get from Power Plays. And I'm both terrified and so excited to be taking this next step with this venture. Yay! Way to go, Linz! Thanks! (laughs) We have a screamer of a show for you this week. We are going to talk about cheating, yes, of the sign-stealing variety Astros, but also the financial kind, Manchester City. I interview Bailey Brown, head of the Independent Supporters Council of North American Soccer, that is football, and we will discuss the docuseries Cheer, which we've been waiting to do. But before all that, I want to take the temperature of the room on the Leila Ali and Clarissa Shields beef that may in fact be bringing Ali out of retirement. 
Does anyone have feelings? Well, I'll just say that these two hate each other and have done this for years, like absolute years. So a lot of this isn't new. I personally color me the skeptic. Like I don't, I think that it just remains this kind of level of talk. I don't think Layla will do that. Like, you know, she talked even in, in this exchange, she talked about how her current weight is 200. She fights at a 168. And I just don't actually think she would want to take that L in the <laughs> ring personally. But it's, you know, I, I've always, I've been fascinated for many years about the animosity between these two. And I think Clarissa really, really feels that Layla reserves a particular sort of skepticism or irritation towards her. And she often points out like all of the other kind of people in her generation of boxing that Layla seems to support and always reserves kind of criticism and pointed critique about not only her stuff on the, in the ring, but out of the ring. And so I think Clarissa feels a bit targeted and that has fueled this a lot. And I think Layla thinks that Clarissa threatens her legacy. And um, so on one point, it's really funny. And it's been something that I'm like, you know, emoji, eye, side eye, <laughs> popcorn gif, like all of it. But also it's something that like low-key saddens mm. me because I, to quote Hamilton, <laughs> the musical, the world is wide enough for <laughs> both of them to be boxing stars and legends and um, yeah. Yeah, I was watching her with Stephen A. Smith and wanted to just throw up anyway because Stephen A. Smith on women's boxing, like all he could do was talk about Muhammad Ali the entire time and nothing about her career whatsoever. But yeah. Yeah, I was like, why is he Yeah, even? like, did you see that? <laughs> like, and it was like, let's talk about your father. And I was like, literally, Layla, please punch him. Like, please, please. <laughs> For the <laughs> culture. <laughs> please just have you out of retirement <laughs> to just kick Stephen A. Smith's ass, please. And she, but anyway, yeah, you were, you're just totally right, Amir. She did a whole laundry list of boxers, and Clarissa Shields was just painfully not there where she should have been. Hmm. Shereen? Yeah, I mean, I started thinking about this when Amira brought it to our attention, but also part of me wonders if any of this is not fabricated, but sort of marketed as such, because they're both getting a lot of attention. Of now there's it is. a lot like <laughs> no, I mean that like my friend Morgan Campbell covers a lot of boxing and we talk a lot about the drama and like a lot of this is exciting, you know, for those that aren't familiar with boxing. It's a lot of hype up. It's part of the boxing culture. But it's just like, I hear what Amira says. Like, there's definitely, and Clarissa Shields, as we know, she's been on her show. She, you know, packs no punches. Is that even an accurate term in this context? Anyways, she she doesn't hang back. Like, she's very clear on her feelings and she's like there's no filter there is no filter and it's just sort of like it makes me think that she I feel her pain is really or her anger and emotion is very palpable is what I mean whereas Layla Ali who let's be honest will always get a pass because of who her dad is he was literally the greatest of all time period so yeah like yes Stephen A. Smith is terrible on pretty much everything but she has that like shield, so to speak. Her dad is Muhammad Ali. Like, oh my God. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, 
so I would I don't I don't know if I actually want to see the two of them fight because like but I wouldn't put it past Layla Ali like she want to get in there she has the resources she has the drive would it I mean the one thing is Layla Ali is what 15 years older than Clarissa Shields but I don't know 18 18 wow I, she was 18 yeah, so like, we'll see what going. happens I just you know if if Amir is right. It's sad if it gets really like horribly nasty because boxing can be gross this way. It's terrible. But if they both come forward and fight and they can make us one thing I will say is that Layla Ali's quote I loved about for the right amount of money. And I was like, say it, speak it. <laughs> I loved that quote. I was like, that is an amazing quote. Jess? Yeah, I don't think this is going to happen. I mean, when I heard that there's an 18 year age difference. And then Layla Ali pointed out immediately that she hasn't boxed for 13 years. And I was just like, I mean, Clarissa is so good. I mean, that's part of what's happening here, right? As Amir was saying about legacy. Um, I did think it was interesting that Layla, like, you know, pushed the 1 million purse thing that women have never had one before. Um, and so part of me wonders if she's just putting floating the balloon to see if a promoter out there will finally do that whether or not she would actually accept on the other side of it is a whole other thing but it'd be cool to see that that's where women's boxing is now that they you know she could prove that there's money behind it without actually getting it It would be my absolute pleasure for the right amount of money give me (laughs) that on a (laughs) t-shirt to me though I get a little sad because I think that right now, who else is Clarissa Shields going to go against? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think we're seeing more of a, you know, we need to build, women's boxing needs more depth. It needs more attention. There is a lot of talent out there, but they're not, they don't have the names because, you know, Clarissa Shields is is the name of the sport right now. And everybody acts like there's only room for like one big name. So my hope would be that there's a current boxer that Clarissa Shields can challenge that can really challenge her and, you know, get a million dollars. Like that would be you know, the ideal world. And I understand why she's going after Layla Ali right like this, because, you know, she needs to stay in the headlines. She needs to be, you know, digging up. This is all part of boxing and part of self-promotion. And it comes from a very real place. Like these, this animosity, it comes from a very real place. But I also think it's strategic. Like it's not an either or thing. And yeah, I just, let's let's get more names in, in the in the ring, literally. Yeah, and I can I just like say to Shireen's point, it's not just that she's Muhammad Ali's daughter; it's that she was the face of women's boxing. Like she, it's it's her own career that affords her. She was able to build a career certainly on that kind of familial legacy. But I think a lot of this is the kind of animosity between generations. Clarissa has been able to access some doors that were closed when Layla was having a career. And so like, I, you know, I, I agree with Lindsay that, you know, boxing is always about flaring these kind of discontents, but also these are, have been long simmering and you can like look at like a tweet here, a tweet there, even when they're not checking each other by name. And so it's really easy to flare and amplify things that like are also like just very much felt. 
And there's so many layers to this. There's all the privilege, right? That I'm, I know Clarissa feels like, you know, she grew up, exactly. she built her career from absolutely nothing. And then, you know, you know, came up with nothing. Whereas Layla obviously had a big head start in so many ways. But then Clarissa comes on the sh- uh, the scene. And ever since she first came on the scene, she's been one the one saying, I'm bringing boxing to the mainstream. She's always kind of done a lot of discounting of the work of the people who came before her. So okay, I understand why Layla feels, <laughs> you know, shafted by that. <laughs> Okay, so we had a lot of feelings about that. (laughs) (laughs) Jessica, would you get us started in terms of talking about cheating and the current state of the huge clusterfuck that is the astro sign stealing scandal? Yeah, well, I'm actually going to start with a different team. So... Because we've had two major teams punished, I guess that's the right word. I don't know. We could we could talk about it for not following the rules. And I'm I'm going to start over in Europe, where UEFA has banned Manchester City, Man City, for two years from European competition, including and most importantly the Champs League. And they fined them 30 million euros for violating UEFA's financial fair play rules. This is not my wheelhouse, economic fines. So I'm not going to pretend that I totally understand all of what Man City did. And I'm going to just right now quote Zito Madu at SB Nation, who is definitely smarter than me. Uh, quote, FFP, so those are the financial fair play rules, aren't perfect. But the idea behind the rules is to make sure owners can't pump money into clubs to cover losses. So clubs only spend the money that they generate. Through leaked emails first brought to light by German newspaper Der Spiegel, City reportedly tried to circumvent this system by having City's owner, Sheikh Mansour bin Syed Al Nayen, who is also Deputy Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates and a member of the Abu Dhabi royal family, fund most of the sponsorship deal that the club maintains with Etihad Airlines through the Abu Dhabi United Group. So basically they're like funneling money through a thing that they're not supposed to. This is a severe punishment. Man City has vowed to fight it at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. It'll be interesting to see if it's upheld. Nothing like this has happened before, especially not on this severity. The Champs League is a lot of money. The winning team pulls down something like 80 million euros. Uh, There's also just a bunch of pride in this. Okay, and then on the other side of the pond, the unending news. That's like the most I've thought about baseball (laughs) in years, I feel like. has been about the 2017 World Series winners, the Houston Astros. They were caught using technology to steal signs during the World Series winning season. As anyone knows who listens, like baseball's not my sport, but I'm going to do my best with this also. So sign stealing is legal in baseball. I feel like we got to start there. But so that the sign stealing, you know, when they do the thing where they tap their nose in their ear and do all the different stuff so that the pitcher is like, catcher tells the pitcher what to pitch the dugout tells the catcher what to tell the pitcher the base coach is telling the the batter and the runners what they think is going to happen the signs are complicated each team has their own it's fine to try to figure out what your opponent's doing except you can't use technology binoculars cameras anything like that it's so-called electronic sign stealing and that's the rule the astros broke they used a camera in their home stadium this is me trying to explain this now they used a camera in their home stadium to watch the signs the catcher was sending to the pitcher, someone in the team's re, um, replay room would watch it, relay that information to a player who then would share it with his teammates. They'd use a dugout phone to send the information to cell phones of the staff. 
And then I'm going to quote the Washington Post here, quote, eventually the Astros installed a, can a video monitor displaying the same footage just outside the dugout so players could look at the video themselves. Players, this is high tech, players would bang on a trash can with a bat to signal to the hitter at the plate what pitch was coming. Generally, one or two bangs corresponded to off-speed pitches, while no bang corresponded to a fastball. MLB punished the Astros by suspending the manager, A.J. Hinch, and general manager, Jeff Lanau. For a year, they were immediately fired by the owner of the team, Jim Crane. MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred also stripped the Astros of their first and second round selections in the 2020 and 2021 drafts and fined the franchise $5 million. Alex Cora, who was a bench coach for the Astros in 2017, is seen as the mastermind behind all this. He went on to manage the Red Sox in 2018 and 2019. He's since been fired. The MLB is currently investigating those Red Sox teams. MLB gave the players immunity from punishment as a way to get them to talk, be willing to talk during the investigation. And they didn't strip the team of their 2017 title. So no one thinks the Astros are the only team doing this, right? Everyone thinks everyone is doing this. But I will say the Astros have been utter shit about apologizing now that they've actually been busted for it. Jim Crane, the owner of the team, did this amazing thing where he insisted that the cheating didn't help them and then was like, maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. It's like, why did he go through all this trouble? We've talked about non-apologies on the show. Uh, the Astros have given a master class in this. So, okay. So we have Man City and we have the Astros. I feel like the connection is that we have two major teams that got caught doing something that everyone thinks everyone does. So, like, is this fair? Did UEFA and the MLB handle these cases correctly? I guess I'm as an outsider to both of these things. I guess the biggest thing for me, I was stunned that the Astros actually got to keep their title. So those are all my initial thoughts on, on this. I'm actually, thank you so much, Jess, because that was like a beautiful synopsis of what is like two incredibly messy cases. But I am really fascinated about the rest of your reactions too, about the connection between these two. So on the one hand, you have a kind of like what seems to me like your regular run-of-the-mill schoolyard cheating, right? I mean, it's not. It's high-tech and whatever, but the motivation behind it, right, is an advantage that is a little bit more clear-cut than Man City's in a way. I mean, basically what Man City did was exaggerate their worth. And so when Sheikh Mansur, which you described really nicely, Jess, when, when you're talking about him taking over, the club was massively in debt. And the idea was if teams can't break even, then those very wealthy owners who are often sports washing their own, you know, image and, and what have you, if they just take off, those clubs are going to collapse with hundreds of millions of dollars of debt that they won't be able to pay. So this, that's one element of it. The other element of it is that it was unfair to others in the EPL that, that you know, Shank Mansour basically took them from being a complete shit team in 2007, pumped hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, like at one point their salary, like their total salary like was like $280 million. So they were sanctioned in 2014, as was Paris Saint-Germain, but it wasn't much. It wasn't much. It was like they got two thirds of the money that they were sanctioned back and blah, blah, blah. So it's also an idea of like, if you're looking at such a corporate model, like the Champions League or the EPL, how is it unfair to just pump money into it? Like, I mean, I hate it, but it also seems to me like sort of weird 
to say, well, you know, this is a corporate enterprise like the EPL, which is the most commodified thing in the whole wide world. But you just can't commodify it quite that much. Like you have to like be like at 95 percent of total blatant capitalist pigdom. Like I just like can't even a little bit <laughs> with it, you know? So anyway, I'll get someone else. I mean, I have spent like like deep, deep um, hours on this and it's sad because I'll never get those hours back. But <laughs> suffice it to say, it's a bunch of like hyper rich UEFA capitalists telling a bunch of hyper rich other capitalists that they're just that much extra capitalist. And here's the thing that they won't be able to prove. Okay, this is my last thing. If you go to Man City... And you're going to say he exaggerated those contracts. That might have been true in 2013 and 2014. But what Sheikh Mansour did worked. They became an incredibly popular team. And so it's going to be very hard for UEFA to prove that those sponsorships are actually more than they should have been. Right? But that's what we'll see. Anyway, Shereen. Yeah, I'm just going to talk about the Astros, not Man City. <laughs> just kidding. I don't know anything about baseball. Thank you, Jess, for that. Just the Man City thing is hysterical. Brenda, I loved your take. Was not expecting that because you hate capitalism. But on the same vein, this is an emotional trauma to so many. And my question was, when I saw the announcement, I saw it from... Grant Wall, my immediate question was, will this affect the women's side? Now, I've been doing some digging, and I haven't gotten a clear-cut answer into what happens, and most of the answer points to no. I actually emailed somebody who works at the club to say, and they're unclear, particularly because Sheikh Mansour is appealing. People don't know this. This isn't final. When UEFA makes a decision, it's always subject to further appeal. So they're in the appeals process right now. So that'll be really, that was my first concern. But what Sheikh Mansour did, you know, is not uncommon within this realm, as Brenda alluded to. The whole thing is shady as fuck, and it's all about money. But that being said, I also have a different take for all those Man City fans out there. Karma. You know when Yaya Toure, the most underrated footballer in the world, gets fucked over by Pep Guardiola? This is what's going to happen no matter how much leader Hosen you have Warren and Bayern. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when you treat Toure like that. And don't get me wrong. I have some problems with him, but this is a rabbit hole. My point is the football goddesses are just, and what is meant to happen will roll out eventually. Watch women's football people. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Amira. <laughs> okay. Um, what I'm really interested in has been watching the reactions um, and maybe as a, a point of comparison with the Astros, the reactions have been so interesting because, you know, a lot of what I've seen has been, again, this is like all taking place at a conversation on the kind of managerial, like upper level, right? Is detached from on the ground, like nobody's banging on trash cans or covering up a supposed tattoo, non-tattoo, third nipple. There's some weird stuff <laughs> happening with the Astros. Um, but one of, you know, one of, yeah. <laughs> but one of the, you know, reactions that I saw was from Josie Altador, who uh, retweeted Grant's tweet announcing these this fine with um, 
eyebrow raised emoji saying, where is this energy from UEFA and FIFA when it comes to dealing with racism? And I think that that's like a really interesting place of thinking what systematic responses look like and for what. And so I thought that that was one of the reactions that I saw of like, oh, here's how this is uh, being able to be punished. Like this is like a huge fine. This is like a huge intervention. And so I thought that was interesting. Whereas when you have reactions a lot to the Astros, the kind of focus on the sanctions themselves is that it didn't go far enough. But there's also this kind of, as Jess said, all these kind of non-apologies from not only the institution, but the players themselves has also allowed the conversation to exist on the on multiple levels so that you can actually talk about on the ground players as well and it has led to a lot more players like even from other sports chiming in to talk about cheating and how it affects them or how they're mad or whatever or if they're mad that people told and the people are snitches or whatever so i found that lebron's tweet i am of sports exactly i was exactly gonna say that it's the the most ridiculous i am of sports (laughs) and so i think that that's been really interesting to watch is like how what the engagement is with these moments seems to me that the Astro scandal has had more engagement, not on the ground, so to say, but like on the ground, because I don't have a better word right now. Yeah, I mean, that that is so interesting, too, about the issue of the racial politics in the UEFA case, because, of course, like that Sheikh Mansour is not British, like in the traditional, like if he was like a white pasty English dude would they be so willing to go after him in the same way? Or is it playing into these prejudices about, you know, Islamophobia and this Middle Eastern money and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, that's an open question. Lynn? Yeah. First of all, uh, my favorite sports mystery of all time now is what was under Jose Altuve's (laughs) shirt and why would he not take his shirt off? So, you know, there are all these videos going around. So now – Everyone's admitted to the trash can thing, but now there are all these rumors that there were buzzers underneath the shirts involved. And um, during one particularly celebratory moment, Jose Altuve refused to take his shirt off. And everyone's pointing to that as being like, oh, that's he's got to have a buzzer underneath it. But there have been multiple very serious reasons given as to why he would not take his shirt off. First of all, his wife apparently was mad that he was taking his shirt off too much. So he was stopping taking his shirt off. But if you go to Instagram, his Instagram is full of shirtless photos. So maybe his wife doesn't count. You've done the research? Count Instagram. I don't know. Everyone online has. So I've be- you know, I benefited from people sleuthing. Okay. okay. Um, and then this week we were told, or last week, I don't know what time is anymore, that it was actually, he had a really bad tattoo. It was like an ugly so ugly tattoo. And it was only so half ugly. finished or something. Something. And so he had told, specifically told his teammates, like, not to take off his shirt. So I just really think that we need, like, a 5,000 word investigative piece like, <laughs> just on this because it's legitimately my favorite. My favorite meme was the unfinished tattoo being a bat in a trash can. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
internet. But I do think it's interesting the difference here between this first being like kind of coaches and players run versus being like owner and management, you know, like like and where we draw that line in sports. And the owner of the Astros keeps coming out and just saying, I knew nothing about that, this, even though there's plenty of evidence that he should have known. I mean, the one the really interesting thing to me is that this is like an open secret. When the Nationals were getting ready to face <laughs> the Astros in the World Series this year, apparently like everybody came up to them. Like they got they got tips from all around the league about how to be the Astros because of how many people suspected that even in 2019, so you a couple years after this trash can scheme, they were still doing high tech sign stealing. And so the fact that it's like this open secret in the in within MLB, multiple people had said they tried to report it, but you know, MLB really didn't do anything until there was like a whistleblower, you know, coming forward in the athletic. That's really interesting to me. Another interesting thing is that the players union is involved. So after they've been the players are granted immunity like we said, and a lot of people think that that shouldn't have happened, but there's actually all this this stuff where the players union I, I don't can't really get into it because it honestly confuses me. But basically, there's legally really no way that these punishments against the players themselves would be able to be upheld because of some le- so are you punishing them just to punish them, knowing it's going to be overturned? So I don't know. It's interesting. Jess, you want to wrap us up? Yeah, I think it's I was listening to the ESPN Daily with Mina Kimes this week and she sort of floated the idea that maybe this is good for baseball in the end because she's going to watch every single Astros game because she's really interested in how crowds are going to respond. Like what is going to be like for the Astros to go into uh, unfriendly stadiums, like how many trash can lids are going to be brought in, snuck in. Um, and players are really mad. I think we should really like it's spring training now and they're in front of reporters all the time and they seem very angry. So it's going to be interesting to see how this what this looks like on the field uh, as far as how players respond to the players when they're actually um, against each other. The last thing I wanted to mention, this is it's been interesting. The 27 World Series title in Houston was a big deal, right? It's one of these moments when sports brought a city back together after um, the devastation this, in this chan- in this case, it was Hurricane Harvey. Um, and it meant a lot to the city. And there has just, you know, fandom works in very specific ways all the time where people dig in. But like Houston has really like dug in in a lot of ways. People are very defensive of their team. And I just, there's, One thing I wanted to mention, which was like the absolute troll move of the Houston Chronicle this week, they released a list titled, quote, how your favorite and least favorite baseball team also cheated. And it's this horrible list where when you go to it, you have to click through every single picture to read the list, which is like the worst kind of list ever. So it's like, it just felt like the ultimate troll move to even have something titled that and then to make it the worst format that exists (laughs) on the internet. And so credit to them. But yeah, I'm, it'll be interesting to see what this means for baseball this season. And now we're joined by Bailey Brown, the president of the Independent Supporters Council of North American Football Soccer. I am so excited to have with us today, um, burn it all down, Bailey Brown, the president of the Independent Supporters Council of North America. And you should know that that includes the soccer 
all the soccer. (laughs) (laughs) Bailey, a lot of people don't really understand what the Independent Supporters Council does and is. Could you just give our listeners a sense of the organization? Yeah. So we are a collective of supporter groups that span from MLS, all three levels of USL, NWSL, and NPSL, and CPL. So we have over 100 members now, which is really exciting that we can say that. And we're currently calculating the total of people that that embraces. But yeah, no, we are a collective that advocates to our leagues. We also work to educate and also promote inclusion uh, within the stadiums. So we kind of do a whole lot of different things, but mostly promote soccer, promote inclusion, educate, advocate, and yeah, have a lot of fun in the, in the process. And a lot of your supporters groups are deeply involved in their community and doing work in their communities. What are the types of projects that they do that have impressed you? Oh, man. So one thing that I've always really thought was really cool was uh, we have a group in Seattle called Gorilla FC. They used to build tiny houses. And I thought that was just so, so cool that every year they would make sure that that happened. Our members in Minnesota are doing phenomenal things with their refugee community. I'm trying to think. It's just incredible because a lot of it is like little projects that they do over the year. And it just adds up to like $20,000 worth of outreach into their community. And it might be working with underprivileged kids and starting soccer teams and making sure that they have everything that they need so that they have a team to belong to. All the way to food banks and refugee work and work with the homeless or even LGBT work. It's just incredible. It's just, it's so vast that there's, it's really hard to just pick one thing that impresses me because I think what impresses me most is that every year it continues to grow. The numbers yeah. of people participating, the amount of money that's being donated, the amount of work that's being done just grows every year. And we actually give award at our annual conference every year for philanthropic group of the year. This past year, it went to Casey Cauldron for Sporting Kansas City. And the year before that went to our Minnesota United groups. But yeah, it's just, it's incredible just the list of diversity that comes within the community outreach and how it grows every year. So as far as I know, you are the only woman to head up a national or in this case, even international supporters group. What is that like? What has that been like for you? If I'm being completely honest, I don't know that gender has played a huge role in my experiences. I think leading up to what I've done in the past, I would say that I've had comments made to me. Um, I know that when I first started... So I'm from Dallas. um, And when I first started going to FC Dallas games, everybody assumed I was there because of a guy that I was dating, which I always Mm -hmm. thought was funny because I was the season ticket holder. (laughs) (laughs) So it it was actually the opposite. but. You know, I think throughout time in something that I think is really special, at least to the North American supporter culture scene, is that a lot of times nobody thinks twice about if it's a female or a male that's getting put into leadership. It's about, are they qualified? Are they the best for the position? So I'm in my second year now serving as president of uh, the Independent Supporters Council. And I've had some amazing experiences but I think they all just come out of the love of soccer and not so much having experiences where my gender comes up or comes into question. I think when you look 
and you were at our conference this past year. There's just so that much diversity. Yeah, there's just so much diversity in supporters culture here in North America that you're going to see the same type of representation on your leadership boards as you're going to see in the crowds. And I think that's what's phenomenal is that at any point in time, I really do feel like people can look at their boards for the most part or look at um, whoever is kind of leading the charge and they're going to see some type of a face that represents them in some way. So yeah, I think that's kind of how I would reflect on that more so. I know that when I go overseas a lot and not particular to conferences or anything, but I get a lot of questions if I'm like sitting at a pub and I'm watching soccer and they'll be like, you're a female, you're an American female. Wait, you watch soccer? (laughs) They don't say soccer, they say football, right? So then like Mm -hmm. it it becomes a discussion point, but not so much here in North America. So if I I were ever to move overseas, I'm sure it would become a much bigger discussion. (laughs) Well, and I I do think it indicates too the different sort of uh, trajectory of of soccer in the U.S. It's not predominantly been the sport that defines the national masculine identity or a toxic version of masculinity that we might see in other sports. Absolutely, and you know, I would almost say, if anything, it's more of like a generational thing that kind of defines the soccer community over here, right? Like, I feel like it's almost like you're going to see, I hate saying the millennials, but it's like, right, soccer became kind of the sport of the millennials and Mm -hmm. they're pushing forward. So I think you're going to see a lot more people in that age group and championing the values that come with being a part of that age group right now in the United States or Canada. Uh, That's where all of our representation is, more so than this good old boys club that it may be in other uh, places around the world. Right. So what made you get into soccer? I mean, so if I'm being completely honest, I was actually not allowed to play soccer growing up. And I always love to tell this story because it kind of embarrasses my parents, which I'm sure they'll listen <laughs> to this. I tell them every time I do something. But I always remind them, I'm like, this was the one sport you never let me play. Uh, mostly because they wouldn't let me play sports they didn't want to watch. And mm. that included a lot of outdoor sports. And, and I don't know that it had anything to do with the fact that it was soccer, but more so outdoors. And in Texas, we have extreme weather, right? So I can't, I always can't blame them. But I started getting into soccer when I was in high school. A lot of my friends watched soccer or, or played soccer even. But I, I took German <laughs> after, you know, Texas, right? That's totally the language that you need to know in this state. But it was right before the 2006 World Cup. And so I remember just being so excited because we had been learning about like European culture and, and all of that kind of stuff in our German class. And I was just like, oh, I'm going to watch the World Cup this summer. <laughs> and I was just, I just fell in love for the amount mm-hmm. of time that I got to watch, you know, the sport on TV. And I obviously watched the German national team because that was kind of what was hitting close to home with what I was doing in school. And I was definitely a nerd. But yeah, from there, I just I fell in love with Bayern Munich. They had a lot of players on the national team at that time. And I just I became the person who would get up and watch soccer on their Xbox while I was in college, out of college. And I think what really kind of changed it for me and this is what I always try to tell people because I'm still involved in like Bayern Munich fan clubs and stuff like that over here. Um, But it's 
give your local soccer a chance. Like you don't realize how good it is over here if you don't give it a chance, right? So after I went, I was in Europe in 2012. Uh, That was a Euro Cup year, not in Germany, but I was in Europe. So I got to kind of feel the vibes of what was going on around. And I got to go to some uh, public watch parties. And I was just like, this is incredible. This is phenomenal. Like, Mm -hmm. where can I find something like this in the United States? And I had some people who had connections to FC Dallas. I'm not going to lie. I uh, didn't even know we had a professional team, but that's okay. And um, just started going to games. And within, I think, a month of going to games after that July, I had bought season tickets. And, And from there, it was one of those things where it was more than just watching a sport. It became a community. And I think that's why a lot of supporters kind of get into what they do, right? They they find a sport that they love, but within that sport, they find the community that comes with it. And yeah, that's kind mm. of my, <laughs> my soccer story. <laughs> so I know that ISC has been really active over working with MLS uh, regarding its fan code of conduct over the last year and it was pretty big news this week that yes. a new fan code of conduct came out. Congratulations for your <laughs> you. for your success in in helping to to reshape that. Can you describe to listeners kind of what has changed and and how ISC sees that? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean the process started uh, last fall uh, when Everything kind of came to a head. And, and I guess uh, let me go ahead and give some backstory to yeah, our involvement yeah. in it. So we, we kind of knew there was a new code of conduct coming out last year. And we started getting word that, you know, this idea of political was going to be in there and that it, it might cause issues. And last March, we actually dropped a statement wanting clarification on what political meant. And then obviously also addressing some of these code of conduct classes and an official appeal system if in case you're you get a ban or a sanction. So we were kind of looking at that, but we we were kind of holding back and watching what the Pacific Northwest was doing because we knew the Iron Front flag was a really big deal specifically kind of to that region. It was something that they had always traditionally flown for a while. And so we didn't really approach it aggressively until we kind of got word from them on if it was going to be allowed or not. And, and maybe we should talk about its kind of political positioning yeah, a little bit, right? I mean, could you just explain a bit about why that became a big deal? So, yeah, people were essentially saying that the iron front flag, which is the three arrows pointed down, was a sign of Antifa, which they were saying was a part of a, like a political group and was supporting like domestic terrorism essentially, which was why they were not wanting it in the stadiums, which would be completely understandable for domestic terrorism stuff, except for the fact that Iron Front does not stand for domestic terrorism, right? It is, it's for inclusion. Um, It's an anti-fascist. Yeah, it's anti, right? Yeah, it's an anti-fascist symbol. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, so we were kind of waiting to see if like, this was going to be a like FO by FO as in front office, right? If, if all the front offices were going to kind of get to make their own decisions on what was going to happen. And that's when the hammer essentially just came down on it. And every, they just said, no, it's not going to be allowed. The anti-fascist action flag is never going to be allowed, which is the, uh, the red and white flag uh, in the circle. 
that you see mm-hmm. kind of overlapping. That's what a lot of people kind of consider what they, they call Antifa, which is literally just short for anti-fascism or anti-fascist. It's not an actual organized group. <laughs> right. So, you know, we have that. And then we start seeing issues with like refugees welcome. And, mm-hmm. and it's this pile up that we start to see. And, and finally, we have the neo-Nazis punching fans outside of the Seattle game. And then we have issues going down in Portland where we have Proud Boys literally standing outside of the stadiums trying to cause issues. And the infamous walkout, or not walkout game, the walkout game was afterwards, but the 33-minute protest of both Seattle and Portland based on the Iron Front and both groups flew it in protest after 33 minutes of silence. And then the meeting in Las Vegas, right? So after that, they overturned the ban. Things uh, kind of calmed down for a little bit. And that's when we started this off-season process of rewriting this code of conduct, essentially where we just asked the league. We said, hey, we want you guys to bring in experts. Like We're not claiming to be experts. And we're okay with saying that. We're okay with you guys saying you're not experts on human rights. So let's let's go to experts. Let's go see what's happening. And let's see if we can get to the bottom of this. And let's change this and make this something that's going to work for both parties so that we can really continue to champion these values of inclusion that really come with our supporter groups and their communities in North America. So from there, we had uh, a lot of different calls over the different months. Uh, people, people involved, <laughs> you know, we even had people from MLS show up to our conference this year, which was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was mm-hmm. awesome. In the end, we did get essentially all of our asks and it was really exciting. So the, the big changes in the code of conduct are they took out the word offensive and they replaced it with the word discriminatory. Um, so it really, really took out this big question of, is what I'm saying offensive because it's, you know, subjective or is this actually being discriminatory and hateful? So, and I actually have it in front of me, so I'll read it to y'all. So the new code of conduct says that prohibited conduct will include, and there's two bullet points. So the word political is completely taken out of the first one. And it says displaying signs, symbols, Images using language or making gestures that are threatening, abusive, or discriminatory, including on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, religion, gender, gender identity, ability, and or sexual orientation. So to, to us, that, that became very clear at that point. Like, it's, if it's discriminatory, it's not allowed. The second bullet point actually goes and kind of addresses what we were asking. What is political? What are y'all actually wanting when y'all say we don't want political signs in our stadiums. And they were able to do it without saying the word political. Well, I guess they put political for political party, but Mm -hmm. they didn't, you know, so it says displaying signs, symbols, or images for commercial purposes or for electioneering, campaigning, or advocating for or against any candidate, political party, legislative issue, or government action. So... Yeah, so the new code of conduct essentially it's if it champions human rights essentially and inclusion within the stadiums and is like a positive message, it, it essentially it can come in. So that's going to include the iron front flag. That's going to include the anti-fascist action flag. 
It's going to include uh, refugees are welcome. So all of these things that were going up in our stadiums really to promote this inclusive environment are going to be allowed going into the season, which starts in a week. So it's really, really exciting. There's been some questions (laughs) over like some of it, uh, like particularly the legislative issue or government action line. But one thing that we're really encouraged about is that our communication with uh, Major League Soccer is is not done. It's not ending. We're going to continue calls. We're going to continue our open dialogue. And if we need to discuss things and we need to discuss you know, the way things are changing, whatever it may be in our, in the world that we live in, we can do so. And, and as a league and as, you know, council, they are going to help with guidance and implementation so that there is a uh, consistency and accountability uh, between all the front offices. So we're really encouraged by that piece and that we think that's really going to help with any confusion that might come with legislative issue or government action in those lines. Well, congratulations. I just want to, yeah, very, <laughs> very many it's, things. It's a lot, but yeah, we're excited. <laughs> it's wonderful. And I just before I let you go, I wanted to ask, you know, so you've got this down and I, I know it's an ongoing conversation, but what types of things, what types of projects are you looking to, to tackle next? Yeah. So we just tackled this with major league soccer in regards to codes of conduct, now we are really going to be pushing the National Women's Soccer League to publish one because they do not have one, mm. as well as United Soccer League for all three. So Championship League, one league, two. That way, they're not just being defined by the places that they're in or any other codes of conduct that are already in place, but that as a league, they're going to stand up and say, hey, we're going to champion these values as well. So we're going to be working uh, this year, really pushing to get those done. This past year at conference, we were all about diversity and inclusion. We had panels highlighting people of color in supporter groups and what we can do to be more inclusive, as well as the LGBTQ community. So moving into this year, it's not that we're going to forget about those. Obviously, we're going to really try to empower our members with the information that they learned. But we're going to really be pushing more into a a forward female type push going into our next conference in 2021, which is actually going to be in Portland, hosted by... It's our first solo host by an NWSL group. So we're really excited about that. But with that, we're trying to work with Football Supporters Europe, which is... They kind of, they're, they, they're what we do, but for over there, kind of in a different capacity, just because they have to deal with UEFA. And we, mm-hmm. you know, we're not dealing with the beast that is CONCACAF yet. I'm sure it'll be coming probably, but it's, it's a little different. But they did this amazing project called Fantastic Females. And essentially, what it, it's a traveling exhibit that they went around Europe and even outside of Europe to get the stories of females and why they're into soccer and why they support and how they support and just showing that there is a place for females in the stands, there's place for females on the field, that this game belongs to all. It's an incredible exhibit. And if you can ever get over to it in Europe, please do. But we are hoping that we can bring it here. <laughs> so we got the green light from them to essentially take the project and start doing our own additions uh, to highlight more people in North America. There's only one on there right now. 
So we'll obviously be adding on while keeping some of theirs. This is like our dream, right? To make this happen in, mm-hmm. a, in a year. It's a big undertaking. So fingers crossed. But yeah, and we want it to come out at conference, debut at conference, and then put it on tour around the United States, Canada, wherever people want it to go so that people can see, you know, just the involvement of females in the soccer communities here in North America. So those are kind of some of the projects that we're looking at in addition to continuing ad- advocation and educational materials for our members. So. Well, never short on ambition. Thank you so much for being with us at Burn It All Down, Bailey Brown. We are very impressed. Oh, thank you for having me on. So, yeah. Okay. I know that everybody here has been waiting to uh, discuss the Netflix docuseries, Cheer. And we did interview... Jade in episode 146. Amira sat down with her. And so I am hoping that Amira, you can just start us off on what is a really um, exciting conversation for everybody. It's here. It's here. It's time to talk about cheer. It's here. It's here. It's time to talk about cheer. I'm so excited. I've been wanting to have this conversation. There's so much to say. So just to start off, for those of you who have um, not been, I don't know, paying attention to the world for the last six weeks, the Netflix docuseries Cheer um, came out in January. It is a six-part episode that follows the Navarro um, Junior College Cheer Team in Texas and follows them in pursuit of their 14th Grand Championship at Daytona. Um, it profiles the team. Uh, we get to know the coach. Um, we get to know a lot of the athletes and really hones in on about six to eight of them that we really get to know who have cheered their way into our hearts like Jerry. But it also, uh, of course, opens up a conversation about collegiate sports, about cheerleading, about competitive cheer. I'm particularly interested in the racial politics of that, which we can get to in a second, about injury about, you know, a whole hoist of things that I have been so eager to talk to everybody about. And so, yeah, I did sit down with Jade. Now, Jade with Roe is a top girl. She's a flyer. She's in the center of the pyramid. If you watch it, um, we see her a lot in the first episode um, in terms of one-on-one interview time, but she is um, one of the featured flyers for the Navarro cheer team. And she's now uh, cheering at Kennesaw State. And uh, I wanted to call her up and talk to her about her experience and what she thought of the show, watching it back, and um, her experience being a woman of color on that team and in the sport of cheer. So if you haven't listened to that yet, I really encourage you to check it out. That was an episode of 146. And I guess I'll just start with this question. After I, you know, after you binge the series... What were your immediate kind of takeaways? What are the things that stood out to you? What, um, why? Why has this captured our fascination? All right, let's roundtable that. Jess, do you want to start? Yeah, I think it's really good storytelling is a, is a big part of it. One thing I keep wondering is like what got edited out in the storytelling, but I just think it's really compelling how they introduced us to all these characters and told us their stories and sort of unraveled those alongside 
um, the build to Daytona. And I don't know how I feel. I mean, I love Jerry. Die for Jerry. Morgan. (laughs) Now I'm just thinking of them all. But one thing I took away from it is the sound. The sound of the bodies hitting when they throw these young women into the air and they land. So they're land. They call them baskets because the men lace their arms together basically and then catch them as they land. And the whoever did the sound for this (laughs) documentary should win awards for that. It's like listening to it is almost worse than watching it. There's just something about that. You know, there's been a discussion around the coach. People love her. She's kind I mean, she's an interesting, oh God, what's the right way to say this? Like, what's the line in coaching when it becomes abuse? I think is something that I kept thinking about because she's, there's one guy named, is it TT? Yeah, where so he hard to watch. is injured. He goes and, com- yeah, he goes and competes when she told him not to. And he comes back a little bit injured. And in order to punish him for that, the way it's edited, this is how, you know, she forces him to uh, practice that day. And he is crying as he is participating. And you're, but also he's one of those people lacing his arms together to catch people. Uh, it's, so it seems dangerous to the flyers as much as to TT's back. Like Morgan, who is getting caught. So your ribs are smacking people's forearms. Right. Um, and she hurts so much. She like goes to the ER in secret because she doesn't want, uh, her coach to find out because of the dynamics around all this stuff. So I do think there's a discussion worth having around, uh, what actually counts as abuse and what it is we're celebrating here around, around this coach. But the final thing, In the final episode, they do like a five-minute thing about who controls cheerleading. And one thing I think is super interesting, and there's this great article from 2015 by Leif Reistag, who wrote at the Houston Press about varsity brands who basically have a monopoly over the sport of cheerleading. I mean, everything. Like, they stream all the competitions. They make all the merchandise. And they fight. So there's this whole thing about whether or not this should be an NCAA sport, whether or not it should be a sport on the high school level. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not it's not considered a sport because people don't take it seriously as sport. But there is this other huge thing, which is that varsity brands lobbies hard. They do not want the regulation that comes. They they don't want to let go of their monopoly. And I just think that that is, they spend about five very compelling minutes in the last episode on that. And I just keep thinking about that part of this. Shereen? Yeah. First of all, thank you to Amira, who I will absolutely yield to her Netflix suggestions. I was reluctant to watch this. And particularly in the first episode, I was texting Amira going, I hate the show because there was one scene of a professor who's like, well, y'all, I think Tex-Mex is actually better than Mexican food. And then I was like, I'm not fucking watching this show. I can't. But then Amira's like, no, you don't ever have to see that person again. So just keep watching. <laughs> She's the greatest villain oh, on yeah. the and show. I like, <laughs> still get angry thinking well, about like, her class, was, which is terrible. It was horrible. And I was like, Amira, why are you making me do that? And she's like, no, no, no. Like, boo, just keep watching. So I was like, fine. So then I did. And I'm glad I did. I just want to echo what, what Jess said. The sound editing for this. As an athlete and somebody who has, I've never done any type of tumbling or gymnastics, but the level of athleticism required for this is mind boggling to me. And I've played soccer at high levels for a very long time. Like I was stunned. The amount of injuries was really upsetting for me to watch because 
you need rest in these type of injuries and the like the level of trust required the mental acuity and emotional psychological acuity required was was staggering and we've known this like we know that cheerleading in high school and collegiate levels is very difficult it's just when it goes pro it's very different on what that looks like and none of these athletes talked about being professional in the capacity of what we know professional to be because it's a very different scene i also thought that that was very interesting. I was really mad at Monica for much of the series because as much as she were actually reminded me, and this is really weird, she reminded me of Pep Guardiola in this very softly vicious manner in the way that they <laughs> they coach. And it's it's cutthroat. And she offered no apologies. But she it was very interesting that her background was in business because she has an MBA. And how she was using that and how she built this up from the ground up and how she brought in kids, many of whom came from homes that were vulnerable or were not stable. And then those stories really affected me. Like Morgan's story. I, I follow all of these people on Instagram now. And like all obviously, I'm I'm still like, I'm not feeling the bows, but I particularly am not going to comment about headgear that someone chooses to wear, obviously. But like, I don't, I don't get the bows, but whatever. And also... <laughs> This idea of what beauty is, and it's a lot of makeup. And you, there's a, they spend a lot of time during this this series putting on their makeup, and we're watching them do this. And I think they're stunning without it, but they're also it's a performative thing, and I totally get it. So that's fine. But just that idea of what beauty looks to be, and Gabby Butler, who's someone I'm very fascinated with, is one of these people who is very muscular, her quads are beautiful. So she's like, Morgan is the more slender, more small featured person. But Gabby is the one that has the hearts of so many girls. And she has explained how she started just YouTubing herself. And she's self-made an entrepreneur at this point. And I mean, also what made me slightly uncomfortable is that how her family, which well, yeah, uh, I was like, she didn't YouTube well, herself. Her parents you know, YouTube. Her. Well, yeah, like, like, <laughs> That conversation between her and her father oh, yeah. is one of yeah. the most uncomfortable things I've ever heard in my life. And he reminded me of. Uh, he goes in the shower when she's in the shower and yeah, just like, like harasses it, her. It, it, it was just really like the whole thing with her parents, like kind of like exploiting, not oh. kind of exploiting that. Yeah. Not it's kind totally, of. Yeah. It's yeah. Sorry. So that's, there's all these feelings I had. So, anyways, it was phenomenal, but there's so many things. We need like a series on discussions on this. It's interesting as, you know, they've been making the media rounds in the wake of the show. You know, Gabby was posed that question. I think it's when they were at Ellen, who basically said, like, besides from that teacher at the first episode, your parents have been, you know, catching a lot of flack, like a real villain of the show. And one of the things that Gabby said was like, it's really been important for her family to watch it back because they've all been able to say, wow, maybe this is a little messed up and that her parents had this moment where they're like, do we push you too hard? Is that like, you didn't look happy here. So, you know, at least what she's saying now is that it has opened up a conversation um, with her parents. Um, and I'm hopeful that is accurate. And I'm hopeful that, you know, maybe that leads to her dad, like maybe not being like <laughs> that. Lynn's. Okay. I, I've been taking notes because I have so many things. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So first of all, regarding the makeup, I mean, it just the 
What they are doing athletically is I watch so many sports and I am not an athlete myself. I talk about this on the show a lot. So I'm amazed at all sports, like the athleticism. You know, I'm always watching sports and all what these people are doing. Nothing even comes close to the level of all that I have when I'm watching the cheer stuff. And they're asked to do it with a smile on their face. Like, we don't ask football players to not look like they're exerting effort or in pain. You know, we don't ask, like, basketball players to, like, smile through everything. So that's just so – it adds this really creepy level that I'm not super uh, duper comfortable with, but is also really part of it. But – one of the strange things that I felt watching this was this push and pull versus with the NCAA. Like, on the one hand, it was like people like Gabby can profit off of what they're doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, everybody is allowed to right now take advantage of the promotional opportunities around the show the way, like, Last Chance You, which was um, a documentary that the same the same director did, has also done on Netflix, can't because of, you know, name, Im- image, and likeness rules in NCAA. Like, you couldn't, Gabby couldn't have the following she has and monetize it in the way that she has been able to if cheerleading was more regulated uh, by the NCAA. On the other hand, and I was actually talking about this, I was on the Slate Hang Up and Listen podcast earlier this week and um, talking a little bit about this, but it's like, are any of their, like, they there are no practice hour restrictions on these <laughs> students. You know what I mean? Like, not like the NCAA. It, I'm never never rooting for things to be under the NCAA's umbrella. Except I kept wishing that there were some more um, that they actually had some of those guidelines and some of those restrictions in place because it seems like it's so unregulated that it just veers towards. I mean, it's exploitative in this whole different way than typical NCAA sports, which is really uncomfortable. And, you know, it was the same kind of push and pull I got with the coach with Monica, where it was like, yes, you're doing a lot for these kids. Yes, you're not as openly abusive as a lot of these male coaches that we're seeing. But the way that you were kind of finding these like, I mean, damaged in people coming from these abusive environments, right? And almost manipulating their sense of loneliness and loss into your gain also was, I mean, actually made me nauseous a, a lot of times. Huh. I, that's so funny because it, it I, I had just so many mixed feelings that I don't even know if I could articulate it quite that way. I think I'm the only former cheerleader on the show, right? Is it? Oh yeah, Brenda was oh, a yeah. cheerleader. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, I you're out there smiling. We used to put Vaseline on our teeth because that what? way you can hold the smile. It doesn't. Your lips don't get tapped, and you can keep the smile for like hours at a time. There's all kinds of tricks, you know, with spanks that they don't even like get into, right? Like hairspraying and gluing your spanks in place. Hairspraying um, your spanks. Yeah, because you you don't want it to go up your butt. Like, so you can glue. So sometimes you glue it. Sometimes people hairsprayed it to try to keep it 
in the same spot. Like I know every trick for like nylon, like to not tear possible. I will never use that because I have not raised my daughters to be cheerleaders. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 the level of athleticism was just absolutely insane. And then asking them to be on the sidelines of these games and do this traditional stuff was just wild to me. I guess I just have like a few quick things because we could talk for hours about this. I think that reality TV or documentaries have have sometimes done really poor jobs um, presenting class. And I, I think that this did an amazing job of yeah, that. Yeah, um, yeah. Particularly given the places that they're from, whether it's Boca Raton, whether it's Houston, whether it's Oklahoma, showing the ways in which there are structural barriers to people from the working class. And that's compounded by race, obviously, throughout the show. And it was just really moving for me. I would say that like Morgan looked really familiar, that kind of aiming to please. So Linz, when you say like there's a manipulation there, I don't, I don't know that a person like Monica would understand that. She's just like, she should, right? I'm not saying she shouldn't. But when she says Morgan is just always aiming to please, right? She's always aiming to work hard. And I, I really got the sense that that she that the coach really believed that, that this working class girl was just and, and it's true, she's aiming to please, but she never sort of says like, why is she constantly aiming to please? Like right. right. No, I agree. I don't think it was a conscious thing at all times, but it was very clearly what uh, was happening. I mean, but to me, I, and Morgan least. certainly yeah. wouldn't agree with you that she's being manipulated. So one of the interesting things is that if you asked her, I am like almost a hundred percent sure that she would say, no, like this is, she believes in me. She's stability. She's, you know, so the way in which it's experienced from the inside is just so different. So the class stuff just killed me. The other thing is like just about integrated gender in sport. Like I loved when the men are sitting there looking at videos and complimenting their, their women teammates. And they're like, oh, my God, like, I would love to do X with her. And she's so good at this. And there's a way in which men are rooting for their teammates in an integrated sport that was just exhilarating for me that you just don't see. Like, you might get, you know, okay, men's basketball team has to go to the women's game, right? And they're like, okay, good job, ladies. You know what I mean? But there's something different about the respect that they have for for the women that they're working with when they're on the same team. Can I just say something really quick that on that? I loved the camaraderie in general because this is such a feminized sport, right? And we think of like girls as catty and they fight all the time and they don't like each other. And I always think of like bring it on and cheeritocracy and all that sort of stuff. And just to see all these people, all these men and women just support each other so hard all the time. I think that's why we all responded to Jerry's Matt talk so much (laughs) and because the way Jerry does it. But that I just yeah, found that I very had Jerry on my desk every Monday morning, like a little bobblehead Jerry being like, "Come on, Brenda, <laughs> go." <laughs> I also feel like there's a lot of Matt talk and burn it all down team, and I think there's different ways of it, but also how they support each other in the struggles in the moment when there's injury or there's something else. You always see people. I love Jerry as well. I was very fascinated by Lexi. I also follow her on every social media because. She's, she's like, you know, like she's the one who's doesn't conform to the rules of a sport that doesn't conform. And so I just, I, I find her fascinating, but Jerry is, everyone's like, 
you know, and also because Jerry was bigger and he was trying to lose weight at one point and talking about that. And I think that that was just really fascinating to me that that also plays into part body image and dysmorphia occurs in men. And that's something that they didn't delve into a lot, but it was there. And so what about the look? Amira, a racialized look there? Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, I, I really resonate with what you said about like, you know, if you were to ask Morgan, was she being manipulated? Like, would they see it? Right. And I think that there's a way in which the what Navarro and what Monica means to these participants is so palpable and what this kind of cheer family means is so palpable that it's very hard to be in that and have and articulate the kind of other processes layered onto it. And one of those is like, there's this very intense racialization and competitive cheer has its own racial politics. And I think for certain millennials, like, uh, like me, who was raised on like, bring it on, we've always seen that like there's a white squad and there's a black squad and like X, Y, and Z. But I think competitive cheer has certainly like gymnastics been a sport that is kind of diversifying. We talked, I talked to Jade about this, her other kind of all-star competitive team is, is majority women of color. But I think how it plays out in Navarro is, you know, it's certainly an integrated squad. Like there's black people everywhere, but they're, they're men. Right. And there's a way in which there's a, the look factor. It doesn't, that doesn't extend to the bases. It doesn't extend to the spotters. It doesn't extend to to the men. And so there's a little bit more opportunity and permissibility there. And you can see it glimpses of this, right? When, you know, when Morgan is auditioning and Monica says, she just has the look, like the technique's not necessarily there, but I can work with that. But she like, she has the look. And then with Jade, who's um, kind of ethnically in- ambiguous, like her hair is is straightened, and and like her, she can she can get into the look for competition, and I think that even like there's three Hawaiian members of the squad, and like Ashley is another woman of color, but she's Asian, and so I think it it shows you the slippages of the co- color line, where. You know, so you have a Puerto Rican girl, you have an Asian girl, there's nobody on that squad who is Black, who is a woman. And I think that there's a really interesting discussion there about what the look has been and why teams, you know, recruit to that look or play to that look or who is seen as redeemable, who is seen as their technique's not there, but we can work with them because in short shoot shorts and high cowboy boots, they can sell, you know, Navarro in this little town of Texas and, and kind of uphold this. And so I think the team that they were really in the most competition with, Trinity Valley, their coach, they have a new coach and he's a black man. And so I was really interested. I kept trying to look around his... <laughs> When they would like show that squad in glimpses, I was like, hmm, does that change the kind of racial politics of the team? So I think that's like one of the areas that I was also examining. And then, of course, the last part and, and what I really had a, a quite sobering conversation with Jade about was like, what happens next? Like what happens when you've been doing this your whole life? And a lot of them have built up brands around this. Um, what happens when you outgrow the institutional kind of development of the sport? So there's options and there's all-star and there's a little, little pockets of possibilities, but by and large, 
like so many other sports we see or, you know, for so many college athletes, like this is the end of the road. And I think that that is a particularly hard transition in in the fact that I hope that when they remount this, because they're so definitely going to do another follow-up season, we'll see familiar returners. But I also hope that there is a little bit of time to go follow the non-returners and to see where they are. I know Ashley and um, Sid, who was another member of the team, they date and they're like in Hawaii. Now they're going to New Zealand for a year to cheer with Hawaiian All-Stars and New Zealand All-Stars. And so, like, I've been following their Instagram because it's adorable, obviously. But, you know, I'm really interested in, like, what happens next. Okay, now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show where we pile everything that has pissed us off in sports this week, throw it on a giant incinerator, and burn it. Shireen, you want to start us off? Yes, thank you. Um, I just want to tell everybody that I announced this on Twitter. It was going to come one day, I thought, but not this soon. I have officially broken up with Tim Duncan. He may or may not know this. He probably does not. But Tim Duncan was, <laughs> Tim Duncan has supported Bloomberg in the Democratic race. You're wondering why I care about American politics not only because they're shoved down my throat and everyone else's as a non-American, but the problem I have with this, and as much as I get Timmy had a promo and Timmy doesn't actually do a lot of media or any very frequently, but he said that he felt that Bloomberg actually supported post hurricane. And I totally get that. And I understand why he felt that way. And he felt that many politicians ignored the Virgin Islands. And that being said, when we look and focus on a single issue, it becomes really, really, really difficult. And Mike Bloomberg, you know, donated money and helped. But what he did post 9-11 to communities, Black Muslim communities, Middle Eastern communities, South Asian communities, post 9-11 was brutal. And my friend Wayda, Wayda Abdelaziz actually said, and this is after one of the debates and quote, this is her tweet. I, this is what Mike Bloomberg said. I knew what to do after 9-11. And she writes, pretty sure surveilling, mapping, placing informants, violating Muslim civil rights and destroying the relationship between the government and Muslims wasn't it. Hashtag dumb debate. And that's pretty much what Mike Bloomberg means to a lot of people from my community. Now that Tim Duncan didn't see this or didn't, get that and particularly being nurtured by someone like Greg Popovich it really confused me so I'm upset I think there's always a way to step back and talk about it but then again Tim Duncan is not somebody to engage like this with media will he think about it will he I will keep sending him emails but the nature of my emails have changed (laughs) so the thing is is that this is sad for me and like we like this just shows that There are no, nobody's flawless. So, except Serge Ibaka now, who has taken Timmy's place. So I think that, you know, this was hard, but it had to be done. So I'm taking Tim Duncan's political choices and I'm throwing them on the burn pile. Burn. 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 
Jess. Yeah, so for my burn this week, I owe a hat tip to flamethrower and recent guest on the show, Alana Myers-Taylor, who posted about this on Instagram last week, and it's the only reason that I even know about this. So the Luge World Cup took place this weekend in Winterberg, Germany, which sounds very cold, but a bunch of competitors pulled out. (laughs) (laughs) Winterberg. Okay. According to the AP... USA Luge, Team Austria, and athletes from Germany and Russia, including gold medal winners, withdrew from the competition, (laughs) citing safety concerns on the track. In case you don't know or don't remember, luge is that winter sport where competitors lie feet first on a small, lightweight sled mere inches from the ice, and they go hurtling down a long tube track. They have almost no protection on them except for their helmet. So in Winterberg, the athletes reported over and over again that there was too much ice buildup on some track curves, which ups their chances significantly of crashing. Coaches even went out on the track themselves to try to work on this, which the AP says is, quote, a highly unusual move, but one done with hopes of making the surface at least somewhat safer. And then there were a a series of crashes during the training. A German doubles team pulled out afterwards saying that the chance of crashing is, quote, extremely high and therefore in calculable. U.S. loser Chris Madster, who won the silver in the 2018 Olympics, posted on Instagram, and I'm just going to read a big chunk of this, so bear with me. Quote, the Federation of International Luge, FIL, does not appear to understand the needs of athletes and at times chooses to not listen when there are serious issues. Instead, they default to the false notion that if, that is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But what they do not realize is that it is very broken. He went on, quote, not only are track conditions less than ideal, but this was brought to the attention of the FIL. And yet again, we are told that everything is okay. It's always okay. For the last 15 years, everything has been okay. I'm frustrated with the same mentality. I'm frustrated that as athletes, we feel like numbers and do not have the ability to enact change to an organization that unless the IOC places a mandate does not want to change. Everything is not okay, which is why I will not be racing in the men's competition, not because I am scared, not because I do not trust my ability to make it down this track, but to say to the FIL, the athletes are the most valuable stakeholders of the organization, and without us, things are not okay. U.S. loser Brittany Arndt posted a picture of herself giving a thumbs down on Instagram and wrote, quote, for the very first training runs, we told the technical committee that the track was unsafe and we should not be sliding. They laughed in our faces and told us it was our choice to forfeit our runs and not slide. The FIL took no action to secure the safety of athletes. She also made the very good point that she is from a team with resources and support, and so she can choose not to compete when she feels unsafe. Quote, but a lot of people don't. There are small nations who have no choice but to race to secure funding or for other reasons. She added, I do not think that the International Luge Federation cares about the safety of its athletes. That is mind boggling, right? One must wonder what the FIL is for, if not primarily to protect its athletes who make up its sport. Luge is terrifying. When it's run on the safest of tracks and the safest of conditions, the idea that people are being told to compete when it's unsafe is just, it's wild to me. I, I don't even understand this. So this week, we can go ahead and add another sports organizing body, the Federation of International Luge, to the burn pile. Burn. Burn. Lance. Uh, yeah, so I actually had a very last minute change of my burn because USA Gymnastics did something else horrible um, that I had to <laughs> throw. So USA Gymnastics, as we talked about, they are trying to settle with all of the Nasser survivors. Um, their first offer of a settlement was laughably low. Um, this one had was slightly more money, but as part of the settlement, they asked uh, survivors 
to release the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, Steve Penny, the former president of USA Gymnastics, the, and the Carolis, Martin Belli Caroli, from all liability <laughs> in the Nasser case. So essentially saying, take this money and then you can't get any more justice from anyone involved in this case. Rachel Denhollander, former guest of the show, and of course, the first Nasser survivor to come forward and really the leader of the survivors has an incredible thread about this offer on Twitter. And I just want to read one quote from her, which she says, there have been a lot of incredibly painful and outright disgusting moments since I let my abuse become international news, because these organizations made it the only way to stop Larry. But today might be the worst. So burn just throw that on the burn pile burn burn mira yeah i want to talk about uh tommy tuberville so for those you don't know he was the coach at auburn the football coach at auburn for many years um last year he announced that he was gonna run for the u.s senate in alabama and so he is in the republican primary right now that's challenging one jeff sessions Former press secretary Sean Spicer is coordinating his campaign. Um, It's a mess already, right? Okay, so, but this past week, ESPN wrote a feature on his political run. Um, And the entire premise was if Alabama fans could vote for an Auburn coach. (laughs) So, it literally, yeah. It literally sets it up (laughs) as basically talking about how he has his platform, his Senate run. He talks about education, about immigration. They say he supports Donald Trump. All of these issues are important to him. Yet he's running in a state where the Iron Bowl is contested 365 days a year. And he coached one side for 10 years. And this and so it goes, right? And... One of the things that it does is, first of all, ignores how he's framing this in the first place, where he's not, he, Turboville understands Alabama better than (laughs) this article understands Alabama, that Tuberville's literally framing it as, listen, I want to drain the swamp. I'm getting into this race because of, you know, all of these issues. We, as Alabamians, are very good at winning football. And when he's saying that, he's meaning Auburn and Alabama together. So he is he is framing it as, I'm a football guy, an outsider to politics, that you're electing me to go in and shake things up. He's not even, you know, there's one anecdote of some guy who comes up to him and says, coach, I'd like to vote for you, but I don't know if I can because you coach for Auburn. And it's literally, you can almost read it as a joke. If he likes to vote for him, he's liking to vote for a platform that is consistent with far right Republican values, because this is also a man, let's remind you, who said, quote, I've been in cities, folks. You can't drive through a neighborhood. Why? Because terrorism has taken over. Sharia law has taken over. There's places you can't go in this country that you're not wanted. In our country, I mean, this is not the Middle East. This is what we're talking about. If you look on his Twitter today, he says, I'm draining the swamp. 
Trump, all these lying so-and-so politicians are mad because a football coach is about to beat them. This is not actually a Auburn-Alabama divide. This is he understands Alabama politics. He understands that the majority of the people, the white people in that state, will absolutely have no problem casting a vote for him because they they elected Jess Sessions. Look at the race he's running in. Like, so don't I spare me, spare me these articles that frame this as like a moral divide that somebody will have in terms of pulling a lever for somebody who coached Auburn. I don't care how much football means to your area. Like, that is actually not as what propels telling them to go to get to the polls. It's not. Like, sports and politics intersect, yes, but also sometimes it's just (laughs) like this person embodies the politics already existing on the ground. So it's not a far-fetch that he is polling within single-digit points of Jess Sessions. Like, that's not a surprise here. Anyways, I'm annoyed. Burn it down. Burn! Last but not least, thank you to Jessica Luther for inspiring what is what what has made me maybe the angriest I've been since like yesterday. <laughs> a high school <laughs> a high school basketball game occurred in California in LA area last uh, week or close to Valentine's Day. And it ended in xenophobic chants by the fans. Of there were two two teams, St. Joseph's and Rigetti High. This is in Santa Maria, so they're very close to one another. I'm happy to report that St. Joseph's won 74 over 57, and the visiting losing fans started to chant at the end, "Where's your passport?" to the other players. This is presumably because the other team had several Puerto Rican players on their team. So so. So if you see the video, which we'll post, you can see them gleefully chanting this. And I understand that they're children that are shaped by, you know, the prevailing environment in which they live. But first off, um, the assistant principal of the Rigetti High students, Ted Leon, or he probably says Lion, um, actually was sitting there doing nothing while this happened, like, right, I'm talking about in exact proximity. The school says they are not racialized chants. They have nothing to do with race. So first off, I want to burn this non-apology and denial of the fact that this was xenophobic and racist behavior of both your students and your assistant principal. And you should be really, really embarrassed about the fact that your students don't apparently know that Puerto Ricans have the same U.S. passport as the rest of the people who are U.S. citizens. That is so embarrassing. You should be embarrassed of the job that you're doing at that school. The high school principal, Aaron Doherty, of the St. Joseph's school came out and had words with the assistant principal and then had to apologize, saying she should have done a better job keeping her cool. No, Miss Doherty, I think that your reaction was absolutely, absolutely fucking on point. So, you know, I want to burn the, the, the behavior of those students and not so metaphorically burn the behavior of assistant principal Tad Leone and all of the racism and xenophobia that is allowed to go on in high school sports. Burn. Burn. 
After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some accomplishments of women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. Congrats before all that to Alana Myers-Taylor on the birth of her son, Nicholas. We're wishing him lots of health and happiness, and we're so excited to see Nico in action. Honorable mentions this week go to Egypt Women's National Baseball Team. They will tour Pakistan in mid-April, and so we'll make Egyptian history by playing the first baseball game by a national team. Leslie Visser, the legendary sports reporter, will be the first woman ever to receive the Emmy's Sports Lifetime Achievement Award. Kim Mulkey, head coach of Baylor Bears basketball team, is the fastest coach in men's or women's D1 basketball to 600 wins. South Carolina women's basketball has now had 80 consecutive home games with over 10,000 fans in attendance. The team and the culture around it that Don Staley has built is phenomenal. The annual Laureus Awards were handed out. Simone Biles is the World Sportswoman of the Year. Sophia Flourish won World Comeback of the Year after returning to auto racing following a scary crash. Oksana Masters, a Nord Nordic skier and cyclist, took home Sports Person of the Year with a Disability Award. And Chloe Kim is the World Action Sports Person of the Year. Wow. Speaking of Sophia Flourish, she will be part of the first all-female crew in the LMP2 class for the European Le Mans Series in auto racing. She's joined by Katarine Legg and Tatiana Calderon. On March 20th, the Dutch Women's National Soccer League will host a record of over 11,000 fans. Congrats to Equal Playing Field folks who participated in the match in France during the 2019 Women's World Cup. They have officially been given the Guinness World Record status holders for having the most players in a five-a-side match, 822, and we should add that included friend of the show, Moya Dodd. Thailand makes its debut in the T20 Women's World Cup of Cricket in Australia. It is the first ever appearance for the South Asian nation. Yulima Rojas, Venezuelan athlete, has set a new indoor triple jump world record in Madrid. Can I get a drum roll, please? And the badass woman of the week is Spanish women footballers who went on strike to demand better contracts, and they got it. It took over a year of negotiations, but the players in Spain's top division have reached a deal with the league for their first bargaining agreement. That secured minimum full-time and part-time salaries and expected requests for maternity, holiday, and injury pay are probably likely, hopefully, to have been met. Now, in dark times, we like to talk about what's good in our world. Shireen. Uh, volleyball mommy, Salahuddin, and I went to a tournament yesterday, and his team won bronze at his competition. And I just, you know, if we're going to mat talk, I can mat talk myself. Come on, Shireen, you can flip the scoreboard, because actually every, all the parents have to take turns. <laughs> and I was mat talking everybody. And it was some stellar. I, like, stretched before I flipped the little flippy thing. It was pretty incredible. I had an oil change. I always find that fascinating. And I did that on Friday night. What? And more, most importantly, yeah, like in my car, like I got no, a little change. I understood that it. part. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, <laughs> 
No judging love, in the what's good. Okay. I love I love I love Jiffy Lube. I can't help it. Steph Yang is coming to visit this week it's and just I'm not very clarifying excited. at all. <laughs> and, and Jessica Luther is coming to town. So I'm very, Aww. very excited about that. Like I've blocked out the whole week. I know she's not here for that one, <laughs> but I'm still for prep and post. Still, I've blocked out everything. And so my kids are on standby. So we're very excited for the Luthers. Lindsay. I'm about to go to a drag brunch and I've never been to one before and I'm so excited. So that is what is good with me. Wow, that is exciting. Amira. Yeah, I just got back from Portland where I saw our friend Jules Boykoff. He's lovely. His wonderful wife, Kaya. And I just want to give a special shout out to the students on the committee that welcomed me there. Um, Sophia and Carmen and Gina, they are rock stars. And my good friend, Courtney Cox, she's been on the pod before, who drove from Eugene, Oregon, down to see me. And we had a wonderful two days. And so it was just, it was a good trip. I got lost in Powell's. Like, why is a bookstore that amazing? I'm <laughs> surprised I made it out. <laughs> after like an hour and a half of making Jules walk around with me there. So it was a good time. I had a good time. And now I am back here and I'm looking forward to this week. I'm doing a Black History Month, like internal kind of presentation for the NFL. And I'm going to tell them about themselves. So that's going to be fun on Tuesday. And then I'm speaking in Baltimore um, and going to get to see some friends from grad school who are still at Hopkins after my talk on Wednesday. So it's a full week, last week of Black History Month. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But yeah, that's what's good for me. Ooh, that's amazing. I am excited about participating in a conference that includes friend of the show Moya Dodd this week at NYU, which is about feminism and football regulation. Uh, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, I am just back from Brazil, so I would like to say I saw Sao Paulo versus Corinthians. And yeah, and I was super, super close to Danny Alves, who's now playing midfield. So that was exciting. Um, yeah, I felt really good about that. And also, probably not that many of you saw, but Leo Messier had a hat trick in the first half of the game yesterday, just in the first half. I mean, he got four in general. So, you know, I'm always pretty happy. Um, good days for Messi, good days for Brenda uh, type of thing. <laughs> Jess. Yeah. So I want to give a shout out to Flamethrower Adam. He owns a restaurant here in Austin called Locadoro. It's an Italian place. And Aaron and I went there last night before we went to see Pop-Up Magazine, which is this amazing live show that I love. It was fun to meet Adam. We talked a little shop and we got to eat the amazing food. There was fresh pasta. They did this grilled broccoli appetizer thing that was like perfect. Um, so I just wanted to thank Adam for that. Um, Last week, my friend, the musician Mobley, I've mentioned him multiple times in my What's Good, he put out his first single and accompanying video for his new album that comes out later this year, and I am in the video. I'm so excited Yay. about this. Um, I made You are both... so good. So bored. <laughs> I made my whole family watch it on the television with me. It's called Nobody's <laughs> Favorite with the British spelling of favorite with the U in there. It's the first video Ooh. in a series. So you'll see me in more than one of these. Um, again, his name's Mobley. Oh. It's nobody's favorite. It made me very happy this week. So go watch it. My favorite moment was your Instagram comment where was it Aaron who said you looked really mad and you go, I'm acting. <laughs> I am an actor. I am an actor. 
<laughs> I'm an actor. You're an actor with yes, the, with I the need French to, you. There, so I, you were amazing. What a babe. Yeah. That's it for this week and burn it all down. Though we're done for now, we should mention that you can always burn day and night with our fabulous array of merchandise at our Teespring store, teespring.com backslash stores backslash burn dash it dash all dash down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud but can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate to let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can email us burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you can find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would really appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show. We also want to give a huge, huge shout out to our patrons who support, without which we could not do this show. And we are so very grateful to all of you. Those of you who aren't patrons, consider signing up. And there's a lot of extra cool content. On behalf of all of us at Burn It All Down, I'm Brenda Elsie. Keep burning on, but not out. <laughs>